Engaging conversation on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. Hello, and welcome to Pro-Life Primetime News. Today is Friday, October 14th. I'm Teresa Watson. And I'm Leslie Palma. In our top story tonight, we will introduce you to an 87-year-old death camp survivor arrested by the FBI for her pro-life activism. We will hear from Jarell Godsey, president of Heartbeat International, on the unsubstantiated attacks by Yahoo Finance. Teresa will bring you the story of Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, who is quitting the Democratic Party and all of the political news that occurred this week. Leslie will have all the abortion-related happenings, including the U.S. Supreme Court deciding not to hear a case on whether babies in the womb are entitled to constitutional rights. We will meet with Janet Morana, co-founder of the Silent No More Awareness Campaign, and examine a new study on the effects of chemical abortions. You won't want to miss our interview with Dr. John Bruchowski, author of Two Patients, My Conversion from Abortion to Life-Affirming Medicine. An 87-year-old death camp survivor was among the pro-life activists arrested by the FBI last week. Eva Adel is one of more than a dozen people arrested in recent weeks and charged with violating the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act, a federal law enacted during the Clinton administration specifically to keep pro-lifers away from the doors of abortion mills. Eva is a native of the former Yugoslavia, whose family was caught up in the communist takeover of that country in the immediate aftermath of World War II. While the free world was celebrating victory over Nazi Germany, Eva and her people were targeted for elimination, according to her biographer. Unlike the Nazi concentration camps, the communist concentration camps did not shut down when the war ended. They were just getting started. It was in a death camp where she was imprisoned for five months that Eva found Jesus. When she was rescued and ultimately made her way to the United States, she discovered another kind of death camp in her new homeland, abortion mills. Eva became an icon in the pro-life movement, and her arrest for taking part in a vigil outside a Tennessee abortion mill last year was far from her first, but it is part of a disturbing new pattern emerging since the fall of Roe v. Wade. Law enforcement officials are seemingly unconcerned with dozens of attacks against pro-life organizations and pregnancy resource centers, but heavily armed FBI agents have turned up at the homes of at least three pro-lifers in recent weeks, handcuffing them and taking them into custody while their terrified children looked on. Separately, Eva and two other activists, Chet Gallagher and Cal Zastro, were among 12 people arrested in connection with a protest outside an abortion business in Mount Juliet, Tennessee, in March of 2021. Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life, has worked with these three dedicated pro-lifers for decades, and he talks about their joint pro-life efforts in this video. Hey friends, Father Frank here. You know, uh, the FBI is cracking down on patriotic, pro-life, God-loving Americans, and this is an atrocity. Of the 11 people that they recently rounded up, uh, I know a number of them. Let me just give you three quick examples. Eva Edel is uh, an 87-year-old uh, grandma who, uh, she was in a, a death camp and she suffered terribly. I have prayed with her and the other two people I'm going to mention at abortion facilities from coast to coast and seen them intervening lovingly in the name of Jesus to save lives because Eva came to Jesus during that death camp experience where she suffered terribly and she has shared her story publicly on the streets of America. 
Likewise, Cal's Astro has called out on the streets of America for revival, Christian revival. He is a man deeply thirsty for the Spirit of God and on fire for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Chet Gallagher was a third uh, person rounded up by the FBI as if he were a criminal. This man was a law enforcement officer who, when asked one day, when assigned to go arrest pro-life Christians who were peacefully, not violently, but peacefully blockading abortion facilities to save lives, when he got there, he was convicted in conscience that they were doing the right thing. And instead of pulling them away from that door, he turned around, sat down next to them, and helped to blockade that door. These are the kind of people we're talking about. They love Christ. They are committed to life. They love our country. The FBI should not be targeting them. They should be targeting the people that are destroying our country. These are good people and we will defend them. The first pro-lifer arrested in the current crackdown was Pennsylvania activist Mark Hawk. More than a dozen heavily armed FBI agents showed up at his home on September 23rd, arresting him on charges that stemmed from a protest outside of Philadelphia Planned Parenthood a year ago. Father Dennis Wilde, Associate Director of Priests for Life, visited Mark and his family at their rural Pennsylvania home this week and celebrated a Catholic Mass for Mark, his wife Ryan Marie, and their seven children. Cardinal Gerhard Mueller, visiting the United States from Germany, visited with the family yesterday. Pregnancy resource centers have been under attack since the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade was leaked in May, with dozens of centers firebombed or vandalized. Heartbeat International also was targeted by Senate Democrats who falsely accused the organization of collecting data on its clients in order to prosecute them for obtaining abortions in states where the procedure is banned. This week, a new type of attack was leveled at Ohio-based Heartbeat when a hit piece on the organization was published by Yahoo Finance. The story was written by a senior editor who's also an outspoken abortion advocate. She based her story on research from a group called Equity Forward, led by a for former program manager for NARAL Pro-Choice Ohio. This story had an obvious agenda. The central claim of the story is that Heartbeat provides very little material support to the 1.5 million clients served annually at its 2,850 centers. We've invited Jarrell Godsey, president of Heartbeat, to address those claims. Welcome, Jarrell. Hello, Teresa. Hello, Leslie. Hi, Jarrell. Uh, the story quotes Ashley Underwood, she's director of Equity Forward, saying that pregnancy centers, which she calls anti-abortion centers, are in a perfect position to help people, but then claims you're not helping them. How do you respond to that? <laughs> well, I, I I actually laughed out loud when I saw this article because it it I don't know what they're looking at that that suggests that somehow we're not giving out diapers, except that they're looking only through maybe through government eyes, right? That only see uh, exactly how the government dollars that she so readily identifies are actually being used. What she fails to understand is that many pregnancies, in fact, most pregnancy centers receive diapers that are gifted, their donations, their gifts in kind given to the center because the people in the community know well that this is a very natural, practical need. And, and pregnancy centers are conduits for these types of charitable needs. What she wanted to apparently wanted to see was, well, we've been given money by, by a state government and we are going out and purchasing those diapers. 
if the if the government wants to provide diapers, then they can provide they can direct purchase those far far more inexpensively. But this is really a case of a. I think that the term lately has become public-private partnerships. Like that's the that's the that's the really cool term. Well, we've been doing this public-private partnership in pregnancy centers for decades, right? There, we've been doing this because there have been a little bit of public money and a lot of private giving going to help women who need this kind of help. Wow. Well, Joelle, you know, you've been in the pregnancy help movement since you started as a volunteer back in 1988. How has the movement changed over these decades? Well, it's it's changed in amazing ways. It's grown, uh, I would say, nearly exponentially. Um, and yet, at its heart, it remains the same. Like it's a it's a a, a vastly imp, you know improved effort because we've had people uh, learning more and more about how to effectively serve those in difficult situations. And we've had a ton of uh, professionals pour into the movement. Most of them have been medical professionals, you know, uh, the ones that are operating all of those ultrasound machines that are in the various pregnancy centers. We've had nurses uh, join the, the ranks. We've had doctors get involved and other medical professionals. So the, the movement has grown. It's 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 gotten become more complex and it's become far more professional. Um, but at its heart, it's still people helping people. It still is the kindness of people saying, I, I can either um, pour myself into this movement by being part of a paid staff, but the vast majority are volunteering their time, giving of their of their time. You know, that's a gift that, by the way, they can't get back. You know, that's a one of the most precious gifts that we all have is our time. And that is being done in amazing ways across all across the country. But Jarrell, pregnancy centers are often portrayed in the media as fake clinics that lure in unsuspecting women who think they're going to abortion businesses. Is there any validity to that claim? And what are women looking for when they come in for help? Well, this is another narrative that kind of gets crafted, and, and frankly, it's it's offensive. You know, the 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 it's offensive in, on its face because um, the the you know the feminist movement uh, suggests that women are strong and and capable, and we believe that we actually operate with that understanding because we know that to be true. Uh, they they call us fake clinics, and by their definition, the word a clinic apparently must provide abortions or birth control. And if we are, if, if that is our definition of clinic, then there are a whole lot of uh, actual hospitals and trauma centers that don't provide either of those and would be considered fake by that definition. Of course, we don't provide those things because they're antithetical to our beliefs. Uh, we know that, that women can do better than abortion. Um, the, the truth is, is that these are professional healthcare uh, individuals. They come in either as licensed nurses or credentialed ultrasonographers or uh, medical doctors and, and everything in between. We have even licensed counselors. And this is a tremendously professional group. Some, again, are part of paid staff and others are donating their time out of the kindness of their heart. But this is, um, this is one of the most amazing uh, things to hear somehow that they are fake. They're not fake. They're true. They're, they're providing true service true care and in truly a professional way. So what are women looking for when they intentionally find their way there? <laughs> well, you know, often they, they really are looking uh, for information. They're looking to understand what are their options. And this is one of the travesties of the abortion industry. Uh, you know, we know that uh, um, 
more than nine out of 10 women who walk through the door of a Planned Parenthood, say as the largest provider of abortion in our country, nine out of 10 women will walk out without their baby. Um, so we, we know that that's a product that they're selling. Uh, and when we look at the pregnancy centers, we, we see the reverse. We see um, more than eight out of 10 women, pregnant women that walk through the doors of a pregnancy center will choose life. Now, I know that there are some that walk through those doors, uh, their doors, n believing that the abortion is their only option. But I also know that, that, that there are those that walk through their doors that are unsure, unclear, and don't know. And you know what? They, they are sold an abortion. Whereas when they walk through the pregnancy center, they're able to understand and evaluate all of those options because we're not afraid to talk about abortion. We talk about it in the sense of what it is, what it does, what it requires, and how what happens after the fact. And then we also present the other choices, by the way, uh, uh, choosing to parent or getting to choose the parents uh, through adoption. So th these are choices that we wish were, were being displayed in the abortion industry, but in fact are talked about as a range of options within the pregnancy help world. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jarrell, for clearing up uh, those false claims and for taking the time to be with us. And we surely thank you and, and Heartbeat for everything that you're all doing to help mothers choose life. It's our pleasure. And thank you, Teresa and Leslie. Charity Navigator, which rates nonprofits, gives Heartbeat its top rating four stars and tells potential donors they can give with confidence. If you'd like to see Heartbeat's financial reports, they are all right on the website at heartbeatinternational.org. And now we turn to political news around the country. Oregon could have its first Republican governor since 1982, according to a new poll, as residents of the deep blue state grapple with crime, drugs, and quality of life issues, particularly in cities. Republican gubernatorial candidate and former state representative Christine Drazen led her opponent, former Democratic Speaker of the Oregon House of Representatives, Tina Kotek, by two points in a recent Emerson College poll. The nonpartisan poll found 36% of Oregon voters favoring Drazen, with Kotex support from 34% of poll voters. Unaffiliated candidate Betsy Johnson trailed the poll with 19%. Democrats currently dominate the Oregon legislature, and Joe Biden won the state by a 16-point margin in 2020, with the state's most populous city, Portland, widely viewed as one of the most left-wing places in the country. Minnesota's bishops released a statement calling on Catholics to make how a candidate will work for prenatal justice a preeminent consideration as they enter the voting booth November 8th. Prenatal justice is not simply being anti-abortion, though that is the foundation of the pro-life witness, the bishops said in the statement posted on October 5th on the Minnesota Catholic Conference website. Prenatal justice means establishing right relationships between the mother and the unborn child in her womb, between society and the unborn child, and between society and the mother and father of the unborn child. As life begins in the womb, so must justice, said the bishops of the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis. Election officials in Florida are scrambling to limit Hurricane Ian's impact on the election. Despite the widespread flooding and damage caused by the hurricane, election officials were able to meet the deadline to mail ballots to voters for this year's midterm elections. Mark Early, election supervisor in Leon County and president of Florida's Association of Election Supervisors, said all of the counties managed to meet those deadlines. 
However, many of the ballots will have no place to go. Tommy Doyle, the election supervisor in Lee County, where Ian made landfall in Florida, said the post office will attempt to deliver, but there are places they can't deliver to. In fact, they can't even get to them. In that case, Doyle said the Postal Service has alternate sites for people to pick up their ballots for up to 10 days after the attempted delivery. Governor DeSantis said the state is waiting to hear back from counties affected by the storm. He says Lee County in particular is expected to propose solutions for how the state could help, including establishing voting centers that would allow displaced residents to vote anywhere in the county. DeSantis said there is precedent for such centers on Election Day following a hurricane. In general, though, he said he doesn't want to make too many changes to how elections are normally run. I want to keep it as normal as humanly possible, he said in a news conference. I think the more you depart, it creates problems. Doyle says it is already clear that a green light on vote centers on Election Day is very necessary in Lee County, and he's hoping that it will soon be worked out. Even small changes to how elections are run could have an impact in Florida, where election margins are usually very slim. DeSantis is among the candidates on this year's fall's ballot as he seeks re-election in Florida. DeSantis won 60% of the vote in Lee County in 2018 when he was first elected. Former Democrat Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard announced on Tuesday that she is quitting the Democratic Party and pointed out how it is now under the control of radical leftists. Gabbard made the announcement on Twitter. Here is a video in which she talks about her reasons for leaving the party. I can no longer remain in today's Democratic Party that's under the complete control of an elitist cabal of warmongers who were driven by cowardly wokeness who divide us by racializing every issue and stoking anti-white racism, who actively work to undermine our God-given freedoms that are enshrined in our Constitution, who are hostile to people of faith and spirituality, who demonize the police but protect criminals at the expense of law-abiding Americans, who believe in open borders, who weaponize the national security state to go after their political opponents, and above all, who are dragging us ever closer to nuclear war. Now, I believe in a government that's of the people, by the people, and for the people. Unfortunately, today's Democratic Party does not. Instead, it stands for a government that is of, by, and for the powerful elite. Now, I'm calling on my fellow common sense, independent-minded Democrats to join me in leaving the Democratic Party. If you can no longer stomach the direction that the so-called woke Democratic Party ideologues are taking our country, then I invite you to join me. There are 25 days until the 2022 midterm elections. For comprehensive information on the upcoming midterm elections, please visit ProLifeVote.com. And that's political news in a nutshell. On Tuesday, the United States Supreme Court decided not to hear a case on whether babies in the womb are entitled to constitutional rights. The case originated in Rhode Island, where two pregnant women and the group Catholics for Life challenged the state's 2019 Reproductive Privacy Act, saying it stripped the baby's personhood rights guaranteed under the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution. The Rhode Island Supreme Court affirmed the ruling of a lower court that found the unborn do not have these due process rights. The Supreme Court decision not to hear the case leaves the 2019 law in place. 
While abortion advocates celebrated the court's inaction, Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life, said he was not surprised the justices sidestepped the case. We know the unborn are persons, Father Pavone said, and in the Dobbs decision of June 24th, the Supreme Court gave us, the people, and our elected representatives at every level of government, more of an opportunity to bring public policy into line with that truth than we have had in 50 years. In other words, the court has just told us that this is a matter for the people to decide. In fact, the court in Dobbs went out of its way to point out that the door is open for the law to divine personhood from conception. Archbishop Gabriele Caccia, the Vatican's representative to the United Nations, on Monday issued a statement critical of abortion and support of a parent's rights during a meeting of the committee to the General Assembly. The Archbishop's statement, read by his deputy, highlighted the family as the foundation for children's well-being and parents as the primary providers, protectors, and advocates, and he stressed that efforts to protect the rights of children must support and strengthen the family. The statement also said that, quote, promoting and protecting the rights of children also requires the rejection of all practices that reduce the human person to an object. This mentality undergirds the practice of abortion, which treats children as discardable, including in instances of sex-selective abortion or abortion on the basis of disability. The Archbishop rejected the practice of surrogacy, saying it turns a child into the mere object of an absolute desire to be satisfied and cannot be justified by sympathetic motivations. A child is not something owed to one, but is a gift. Hawaii Governor David Ige signed an executive order Tuesday that could encourage abortion-minded women to travel to the state for the procedure. Ige, a Democrat, said Hawaii will not cooperate in the investigation or prosecution of women who obtain abortions in the state and will protect abortionists in the Aloha State from prosecution by officials in states where abortion is banned. Hawaii in 1970 became the first state to legalize abortion at the request of the mother. The abortion landscape changed again last week. Abortionists are back in business in Arizona, where a judge granted an emergency stay on the state's near-total abortion ban enacted on September 23rd. Babies will be legally aborted in the state at least until November 17th, the earliest date the Arizona Court of Appeals can decide on a legal challenge to the law brought by Planned Parenthood Arizona. In Ohio, the heartbeat law remains blocked indefinitely by a county judge who said the law signed in 2019 by Governor Mike DeWine violates the state constitution. The state attorney general will appeal. The governor, a Republican, holds a double-digit lead over his Democrat opponent in his bid for election to a second term. Last week, the group Support After Abortion released a study that analyzed women who obtained chemical abortions. Chemical abortion approved for use in the United States in 2000 involves two drugs, mifepristone and misoprostol. The combination of the two drugs is called RU486. Mifepristone is designed to kill the baby in the womb. Misoprostol begins contractions that will lead to the dead baby being expelled from his or her mother. The drugs can be taken up to the 10th week of pregnancy. The key findings of this study were 34% of women who obtained chemical abortions said that their outlook on themselves or their decision changed negatively since their abortion. 24% reported that they searched for help after their abortion experiences. And 39% of women did not seek help, but said that they could have benefited from talking to someone. Many studies on the psychological impact of abortion are criticized for relying on volunteers who often have strong opinions about their own abortion experiences. However, this study found women who obtained chemical abortions through a random sample. Chemical abortion is an excruciating procedure. Many of the women who are part of the Silent No More Awareness Campaign have experienced this type of abortion. 
Here is Lana sharing her testimony about the effects of taking RU486 to end her pregnancy. My abortion was one of choice. There was no trickery. There was no trickery, no misguided judgment or coercion. It was me, a college-educated 25-year-old woman, about to begin graduate school. With a boyfriend of over a year who loved me and supported me in everything. My thoughts at the time were so selfish as I researched my choices and finally stumbled upon medical abortion. RU486 was inexpensive and non-invasive and, I assured myself, more humane for the baby. The process was so easy, so simple, that it hardly conveyed the gravity of the truth. Just two pills and suddenly my period would return and life could go back to normal. It never did. The next few days, I sat in the shower watching life stream down the drain. But it was the next few years that really brought the hurt of our decision to full fruition. The graduate degree that I wanted to pursue instead of motherhood was never finished. Creation wasn't just halted in my womb, my writing suffered as well. And the boyfriend that I wasn't so sure about became my husband. And our decision years earlier haunted our relationship. Neither of us ever forgot our child and instead became vividly aware that it wasn't just some problem that a procedure could take away. I am standing here today because I believe in the healing power of the truth. And the truth is that millions have been killed legally in this country through abortion since 1973. My daughter, Isabella, was one of them. And the truth is that a piece of my husband Christian and I died on that day too. But God brought us back to life. And it was so simple, so easy to return to God's grace that I hardly believe myself deserving of it. But one of the things that I was certain about was that our child's death could not go down in the history books silently, a secret hidden away, never to be shared. The truth deserves more than that. Life deserves more than that. And our children, all of our children, deserve more than that. And that is why we are silent no more. We have invited Janet Marana, the executive director of Priests for Life and co-founder of the Silent No More Awareness Campaign to join us today. Welcome, Janet. Thanks for having me. Um, as the co-founder of Silent No More and with your years of experience helping women who choose abortion, are you surprised by the statistics in this report? Well, no, because I know by the testimonies we get, first of all, we are getting the testimonies from chemical abortion or medical abortion, like the abortion industry calls it, quicker than surgical abortion. And people have been asking us, well, why is that? Because the woman, she becomes the abortionist because she's the one, well, she takes the first pill inside the abortion clinic, the second pill she takes at home. And then her bathroom becomes the abortion clinic. So all the guilt, all the you know problems come to her alone. Whereas surgical abortion, the women can point at, it's that abortion clinic that did it, that abortion doctor that did it. But now they're the doctor, their home is the clinic. 
Well, Janet, you wrote a recent book, Everything uh, You Need to Know About Abortion for Teens, right? right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So you discuss about these chemical abortions right. and <laughs> the psychological effects, you mm -hmm. know, that you were, you yes. were just discussing. So you, you know a lot of these women and you've had firsthand experiences with them. You know, can you share a little bit about that? Well, sure, because the women will say, first of all, some of the stories say, talk about women who've already had a baby and now, you know, second pregnancy, not ready to have another one go for this chemical abortion. They said the chemical abortion was worse than giving birth, the excruciating pain they were in. Other women said the abortion clinic told them, oh, no big deal, like a heavy period. They said it was far opposite. And then in fact, they see their baby in the toilet. They see, and they talk about seeing arms and legs and fingers and toes. And they're shocked because the abortion clinic has told them, oh, it's just a blob. Don't worry about it, like a heavy period. And they see their baby. And then they're so traumatized, they some of them instinctively try to scoop up the baby and they grab a shoebox and they go out in the yard and bury the baby. Or others just flush the baby and then they go, oh my God, what did I do? I just, I, my baby's gone now. Now what? You know, so it's very traumatic. And I've had some women tell us that they went for bleeding, not just a few days, weeks and months, and then others ended up in the emergency room because of complications from the chemical abortion. Wow. Well, as of right now, chemical abortion is about 54% of the abortions taking place in this country, and it's going to grow, I think, since Roe v. Wade was overturned because there's hysteria in the abortion industry and they're figuring out ways to mail pills to women. So we're going to have a lot of much more wounded women. What what can they do? Well, first of all, I think the 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 thing for the pro-life movement is to get the truth out about chemical abortion. First of all, don't call it medical abortion. That's what the, that's their words, not ours. It's a chemical abortion. These chemicals are bad for women, bad for the baby, but bad for the women too. And repeat the stories of what happens to the women and, and how bad is this? The other danger about the chemical abortion is so many of these women are taking it with no medical advice, really. Right. Think about why would you take such a medicine like this? There's no medical history. What, what, how does this affect women who are diabetics or have other medical complications taking this chemical abortion? So it's a real sound the alarm that this is not good medicine for women because it's not medicine at all. I mean, you can't even get antibiotics without going first to the urgent care, right? right. And yet you can get this dangerous drug that's going to kill your baby and give you all these problems and complications without any kind of medical history or medical advice at all. It's incredible. Um, well, Janet, we, we know that you'll come back and talk. Of There's course. a lot of, There's a lot more could, about I this. I can talk a lot about yes, this. Yes, we have a lot. But, but I just want to remind them, just go to abortiontestimony.com. Click off RU486 on the search engine, and you can start reading for yourself. Please spread those stories of the destruction it does, always to the baby, but to the mother, too. And Janet, where can people go to get your new book? Oh, just go to abortionandteens.com. I personally have autographed the books for them and we have quantity discounts for youth groups. And I will personally do a Zoom class for these youth groups too. I've heard, I've heard about that <laughs> and that's going to be a lot of fun. So don't miss out on this opportunity. And thank you, Janet, so much for being Thanks with for us. Thanks for having me. And by the way, you ladies are doing a marvelous job with the Pro-Life News. <laughs> thank, thank you. you. <laughs> Dr. John Gruchowski is a pro-life OBGYN but as his new book details, this was not always the case. The book is called Two Patients, My Conversion from Abortion to Life-Affirming Medicine. And we've asked the doctor about his incredible journey. Welcome, Dr. John. Oh, it's good to be with you this morning. 
Doctor, there is so much in this book I would like to talk about, but let's start from the beginning. You grew up in a pro-life home and even went to the March for Life, yet as you point out, you were skilled at remaining lukewarm. Was abortion just something you didn't have an, an opinion about one way or the other? Well, if you can imagine, um, I was probably, I don't know, 12 or 13 when it first really came up and my dad drove into the driveway as a teacher saying, oh my God, it's Black Monday. The United States just legalized abortion. And so I always knew it was wrong. We said the rosary every morning um, in our, you know, before school. But as you got more and more into education, you really became lukewarm over that particular issue. It was really the commentary of it's a woman's right. It's now the Constitution. And we need this for happiness. And as you go through high school and college, um, you had friends who were commenting on that. And then you had professors talking about um, social justice and kind of situational ethics, where you have to make tough decisions, God understands. And so it really was lukewarm. Well, doctor, I, I, I can understand that. We actually have a t-shirt here that says uh, social justice begins in the womb, but uh, we do understand what uh, the liberal media talks about. But you did your first abortion as a third year medical student, I believe. What was that like? Right. Um, it was somewhat daunting. Uh, the professor who taught me this uh, guided me through it. He was a very um, good teacher. He knew that my background gave me some hesitancy, but he knew that I wanted to be the best OBGYN I could be, meet women where they were, provide some freedom for, for their reproductive health. And uh, he just guided my hands through it. And it was one of the earlier abortions where you don't have to count body parts. It was a very similar to a DNC that we do for a miscarriage. So I knew that there was life there, but it was very early and the mother didn't want it. And this was a patient of his and he was just trying to introduce me because I wanted to be the best OBGYN I could be because the status quo for the last 50 years is if you believe in a woman's right to choose, and you believe that women need reproductive freedom, you ought to either refer or provide abortions. And it's abortion on demand for any time, at any time, for any reason. So being growing up in a good Catholic family, a good Polish family, we're not ideologues. But that lukewarmness just pulled me into that world of providing abortion as if it was good medicine. Well, you describe having a sort of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde life a little bit later on, I think, in your medical training. You would be aborting babies at work and volunteering at a pregnancy resource center in your off hours. How, how, did, you, how did that come about and how were you able to reconcile the two? So, yeah, Leslie and Teresa, um, you know, God has a funny way of hounding us, of finding us. And... Uh, he knew that um, I just wanted to be an excellent physician. Now, by that point in my career, I was already beginning to do earlier and then later and later abortions. And they were becoming harder and harder to do because 
I had to count body parts. I had to um, induce the fetus. And then if the mother didn't want it and it came out alive, you had to do things like put it in a can, you know, the bucket on the floor and just cover it up with a towel because it really wasn't um, considered wanted or welcomed or even human. And so uh, this cognitive dissonance, I became more and more, I had to steal myself internally where my heart was. Now I'm in my residency and I'm just being a normal resident. You know, I'm doing much more than just abortions, but I was doing them the first two years. I'm driving to Virginia Beach, Virginia. I drive by a pregnancy resource center, mostly run by the um, First Assembly Church nearby. And we prayed at night <laughs> for women to come in and find an alternative to abortion. And I was so lukewarm and so self-centered that I didn't even tell them at first. <laughs> I didn't tell them that during the day. So if you can imagine that cognitive dissonance in my mind, but my heart was breaking because I think my parents uh, fertilized the ground pretty well, meaning we had a family that went to church, prayed with scripture, understood the faith, said the daily rosary for the conversion of Russia. And in my lifetime, stuff happened. Yes. <laughs> so, but here I was um, splitting. I mean, I began to question because by this point, the medical literature was beginning to come in that abortion might cause preterm birth, might cause mental illness, might cause breast cancer. So the medical literature was there and the vast majority of people are just kind of lukewarm. They just kind of go through these, you know, they just kind of go through the options. Uh, well, if I can't provide it, I'll give it to somebody else. And that's what the status quo is. And that's what we're being pressured to now. But here I was in a pregnancy center at night. And it was this dynamic that the Lord put me in when um, he then provided some real interesting and holistic and healthy and faithful people in my life. Well, doctor, I can't imagine the conflict, you know, that you were experiencing, but you had two religious experiences, one in Guadalupe, Mexico, and the other in Medjugorje. It seems you ignored one and paid attention to the other. Can you tell us about that and how you arrived at the decision to finally stop doing abortions? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, and I love the question because I really want this book to show people healing, God's mercy. It's for patients and providers. There is a better way. And so the first time it was between medical school and residency. And my friend asked me to go to Mexico City to help his friend, a priest, um, build some water treatment for a barrios. He was, he was, it was like his parish. Well, while we were there, he took me to the shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And in the middle of the day, in a very crowded, amazingly crowded basilica, there were people of all ages, all all strata, totally in reverence of this image that I remembered as a child. 
And while I was just thinking about this, because at this point I was probably so slid away that I was just thinking, I was just experiencing the culture. And I heard audibly, maybe internally, maybe not, why are you hurting me? And it was clear, it was direct, and it went, as you all know, somewhere deeper. And I said, ah, it's gotta be the heat. It's gotta be the beer that I had at lunch. <laughs> I walked away. So recently at mass, we were talking about if today you hear his heart hearted, if today you hear his heart and not your heart. Voice, hard heart. Well, that was me. And I just walked away. This was a cognitive, no, this, come on, man. I don't believe that. So now let's fast forward to that place where I was split, that cognitive dissonance, that heart hardening, the data beginning to show that it's not as healthy as we once thought, if the data was ever true in the first place. So in two rooms, side by side, I'm saving a baby at 22 weeks, 23 weeks, and I'm killing a baby at 22, just based on what the mom wanted. Wow. So if you can imagine, I'm a busy OBGYN, I'm on labor and delivery, I'm taking care of the people I've been given. In one room, the mom wants everything done, and I'm using medication and gravity and conversation and compassion with her. I mean, I'm engaging her and doing everything I can, and I'm that is now no longer a fetus, it's her baby, it's her unborn child. In the next room, the mother's like, no way, I don't need this. It's becoming too much of a hassle. Please just get rid of it. I didn't take a good history and I broke her water and just ended it with medicine. Out comes the baby, I pick it up by its head, I put it on a scale because it looked bigger than I thought and lo and behold, it was over 500 grams. In the state of Virginia back then, that's considered a human life that must be going to the, that goes to the pathology department or goes to a, you know, can go to a funeral home if that's what the mother wanted. Under 500 grams, it's a product of conception. I have to hit the button and now call in the NICU doctors. That's the neonatal intensive care nurse. And I'll be darned, she comes in with her team to resuscitate this baby, no matter what the mother wanted, because it was over 500 grams and it was her patient. She says, John, stop treating my patients as tumors. And she said it directly eye to eye. And that's when she said, I want coffee tomorrow. Next day at coffee, I was wondering what she wanted. She goes, you know, you have two patients in there. You know, you as an OBGYN have treated two patients for all of time. You've always cared for two patients. And now you're better than this, John. You're better than this. I know the patients who line up to talk to you at your clinics. You're really good at listening. You're really good at hearing their story. You're really good at diagnosing and treating. But in this case, what are you doing? She said, I just got back from a place called Medjugorje. I know that you're not, you don't go to church, but hey, give it a shot. It's a pretty amazing place. Two days later, my mother calls and says, hey, what do you want to do for winter break? I want to go to Yugoslavia. Oh, you want to go to Dubrovnik? Oh, you want to go to Medjugorje? And I thought twice in one week, 
that's too much of a coincidence. So I went. We went on a communist airline. I got there, and uh, there were only a few pilgrims there at this point in the 19, late 1980s. I was a second-year resident. I was on my winter break. I had just, you know, I was doing everything that I was already doing up to that point. I got on the hill. A young woman comes to me and in my prayer tells me that um, I'm a doctor. I'm an OBGYN. And our Lord and his mother have something for you. And she gave me several things that if I'm open to it, I could help the Holy Spirit renew the face of medicine. Well, she left. And in my prayer, I encountered the sacred and immaculate hearts. Personally, intimately. I wow. fell to the ground as a man of unclean lips with unclean hands and a very hard heart. And I was helped up by her. And I was loved. Absolutely loved. And on the spot, I repented. In the presence of love, you can't respond anything but with love. Yeah. If you know what I mean. And that prayer was so profound that it was almost like scales coming off my eyes right then and there when I went back down. And that's when I heard again the voice, Johnny, practice excellent medicine, be the best you can be, see the underserved daily, and oh, by the way, follow the teachings of my son's church in scripture and tradition. And oh, by the way, go show yourself to a priest. <laughs> because in that moment, ladies, I was a leper. So anyway, I go off the hill. I go to confession, which was unbelievable. I mean, to say it's been decades and to tell them that I tore apart unborn children. The Lord's mercy is so wonderful and so liberating, both for the doctor as well as all women who've suffered this affront. Elective abortion is not good medicine, and it's not good for women or unborn children, period. And so I went through the process of trying to start a life where I can practice medicine in the way I was asked to. So, wow. Well, Dr. John, um, we really appreciate you sharing all this information with us. And, and uh, we know you're going to do more of a detailed interview with Janet on Just Ask Janet. But your book, again, it's called Two Patients, My Conversion from Abortion to Life-Affirming Medicine. It's so important it doesn't shy away from the gruesome details of abortion. And it really gets to the heart of the pro-life journey. Where can our viewers get a copy? They can get it at uh, twopatients.com. They can also get it at ignatius.com, as well as Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever you pick up books. It's coming out uh, on the 11th of October. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Doctor, for spending this time with us today. And thank you for this powerful book. God bless you for your commitment to life. Oh, Leslie, Teresa, thank you so much. And God bless the work you do. Thank right, you. Thank you. Before we close, we would like to share with you the latest news regarding the March for Life in D.C. 
The theme for the January 2023 march is Next Steps, Marching in a Post-Roe America. The march will no longer go to Supreme Court, but to the Capitol building. Their plan moving forward is to have a march take place every year in all 50 states and to support the awareness of maternity homes and pregnancy care centers. Leslie, we've attended a lot of marches together over the past few years. So how do you think this one's going to be different? I don't know. I just, I hope that everybody comes. Like, you know, the, the amazing thing about it is there's hundreds of thousands of people, lots of young people, and I hope everybody still comes because yes. it's a celebration, And but the fight's not over yet. So we need everyone there. Exactly. So please come to the March for Life. And thank you so much for joining us on Pro-Life Primetime News, produced at Priest for Life headquarters in Titusville, Florida. We hope you will join us every Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. We hope you will support this show in all of our broadcasts, including Just Ask Janet, our daily masses, and Father Frank's broadcasts by making a donation to ProLifeGift.org. These donations help fund all of our work here at Priests for Life, which enables us to continue educating, equipping, and activating the pro-life community to end abortion. Do you have an idea for a story? Are you someone whose baby was saved because of the help of a sidewalk counselor? Would you like to expose something in the abortion industry? Then please email us at media at priestsforlife.org. I'm Leslie Palma, Communications Director. And I'm Teresa Watson, Executive Manager. Remember, life is the only choice. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.